Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Christ Bible Church in the Twin Cities. I'm Pastor Levi Secord. It is the goal of Christ Bible Church to glorify God by bringing all of Christ into all of life. For that reason, I want you to know that we now offer a second podcast called The Worldview Minute. In it, I seek to demonstrate the universal importance of the Christian worldview by building the theological foundations of our faith and then applying them to all of life. The Worldview Minute aims to produce short, accessible episodes that equip the believer to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord and Lord over all of life. This podcast is available on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and Google. Just search for The Worldview Minute and you can subscribe there. Now let us turn our minds and our hearts to the preaching of God's Word. Let's pray. Lord God, as your Word is about to be preached, we ask that your Spirit... He would be here active among us, bringing new life, conviction of sin, encouragement, and strength for what lies ahead. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. We've been exploring now for several weeks in 1 Peter the idea of suffering and that how God's will includes that His people will be at times called to suffer, not in a broad general sense of living in a fallen world, but that sometimes you will suffer for the very fact that you are a Christian, that you will be hated by those in this world who find out that you are following Christ, and that that is part of what it means to follow after our Lord. Christ the Lord, the eternal God, has himself also suffered, and that is where Peter is moving us here today. That God has not called us to do something that He has not done for us already through Christ. Christ's suffering in this way is an example for us to follow. But it is also more than an example. It is our hope. You know, there are many different warring camps within evangelicalism today, and just about any topic, but specifically about the work of Christ. What did Jesus do? What's at the heart of what he has done for us? Is Christ's work primarily that example that I just spoke of? Is it primarily a victory for his people? Is it primarily atonement that is pain for sin? Or is it primarily a form of liberation? These are no small questions. Because this is at the very heart of what the gospel means. When we say, what's at the heart of Christ's work? We are saying, what's at the heart of the gospel? And that's just another way of saying, what's at the heart of Scripture? What's at the heart of God's plan? What's at the heart of the universe? God created everything. Everything exists by the power and plan of God. And at the heart of His plan is Jesus Christ. So at the heart of that work is the heart of the universe. So when we're asking questions like this, we need to think carefully and speak rightly. For too long, evangelicalism has been kind of stuck in a form of pietism. Now, piety is a word that just means holy, to be holy. Holiness and personal holiness is a good thing. It is something you and I should strive after. It is something you and I should work towards. But pietism is the idea that the gospel is only or mostly just about your personal holiness. That's it. It just starts there. It's your personal relationship with God. starts there and it ends there. And that's about it. That Christ only really died for your personal sins. And some take it even further that he died so that you can escape this world or even escape your physical body. And the further you go down along that path, the actual, the, the less Christian 
and biblical you become. To be clear, the gospel work of Christ is never, 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 never less than atoning for sin. And indeed, even personal sin of individuals. But we cannot stop there, for Scripture itself does not stop there. This narrowing of the gospel have left many people looking for something more within the church. What impact does Jesus' work have on everything else? Does it? If you've been around here for long, or if you can read the sign uh, behind me, you know that we believe here that it impacts everything. That it should impact how you think and how you live throughout all of life. The problem is, those who are very solid, generally speaking, on the atoning work of Christ, that He died for your sins, often ignore or downplay everything else that the Bible has to say about the work of Christ. And what that ends up doing is leaving people vulnerable to other unbiblical ideologies. Because eventually you run into texts where it talks about more than just dying for people's sins. And then people come across a charismatic teacher and they're like, wait, have I been lied to my entire life about what the gospel actually is? Ensure, ensure such preachers and teachers, the faithful ones that encounter passages like we have today, they'll preach them fine and faithfully, but they then fail to take the next step of integrating that truth into their total understanding of the gospel and the Bible. So when people have real questions about the problems they face in this age, they end up looking anywhere but Scripture because they've been trained to only look to Scripture for your personal sin needs. Enter liberation theology. Liberation theology teaches that the core, the heart of Christ's work, is that He is here to liberate you from oppression. That's the primary way or reason why Christ came. And as this theory has been developed, it sought mainly, if not exclusively, that you were to be freed by Christ's work from oppression in this life. Now, if, if the main purpose of Christ's work is to free you from oppression in this life, of which suffering is a form of oppression, why would you ever be called to suffer? And Marxist thought has crept into liberation theology and really became the grid by which it was understood. And so oppression became oppressive systems of this world that needed overturning. So Jesus really came as just a precursor cursor to Karl Marx to tell you how you could be liberated from the systems of this world. This took root in Central and South America with disastrous results. It's also been found in what we would call here in the States the social gospel about a hundred years ago, or more recently, the social justice gospel. In fact, I, I, li I recently listened to a presentation by our, denom by our denomination, so you know where this is going, <laughs> where they encouraged us to get rid of our Western ways of viewing the gospel and we needed to hear out liberation theology and, and learn from it problem, of course, is if you've studied history at all or the history of ideas at all, if you've studied the Bible at all, you realize that you don't get much more Western than liberation theology because it's Karl Marx and he's about as white and Western as you can get. If you go back to the forms of Christianity you will find in the Middle East and Africa, they're, they're not talking about liberation theology. So here's the thing. The gospel does absolutely 100% bring liberation. The gospel does overthrow the chief tyrant of this world, 
Satan. Jesus himself said he came to preach good news to the poor and freedom to the captive. And so because of those things, liberation theology can sound plausible. But the oppression the Bible is speaking about is very, very different than what Karl Marx or your average social justice person would think of today. The Bible does not locate oppression primarily in societal expectations. The Bible locates oppression in lies we believe and sin we commit. But if the Son sets you free, Jesus says, you will be free indeed. Modern liberation theology is about freedom from expectations and freedom to find your truest self within. The Bible says the main thing you find within is sin and slavery to sin. And that Jesus Christ will set you free from that. We have to understand that difference. But even as we talk about that, we realize that sin is at the heart of all of the other things the Gospel does. That the burning center of what Jesus has done for you and for me and for this world is to deal with a moral problem. That we have sinned against a holy and righteous God. And that each and every one of you feel that impact day to day. 1 Peter 3, 18-22, Peter is going to demonstrate what the suffering of Christ accomplishes for us. And in this, we see a fuller picture of the work of Christ than either liberation theology or pietism offers for us. So what's the first thing? What's the first thing that the suffering of Christ accomplishes? Look at verse 18 again. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. What is the thing that Christ has done? The first thing Christ has done through his suffering, he has brought about forgiveness of sins. Christ died for sins. He suffered for our sins. And what Peter is doing here is he's pointing back to the Old Testament sacrificial system where bulls and lambs would be killed. Now, these were not always done in just some broad sense, but if you read through the book of Leviticus, if you can make it through that book, you will note that specific sins had specific sacrifices. Why, does, why is that there? It's showing you that this animal was dying for something you have done for your sins. And in certain instances, the priest would gather or would stand over the animal. He put his hands on the animal's head and he would pronounce the sins upon that animal. And then the animal would be killed. And you can have an idealized version of this if you've never been a fisherman or a hunter or a butcher or a, a farmer. You don't realize how bloody such a thing would have been. They would put the animal on the altar, they would slit its throat, and the blood would just gush out. And then they would take out the insides of it. There was a very visceral kind of thing. It was meant to teach the people, this is what your sin is like. This is what it costs you. And then Jesus shows up and John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That He was going to die just as those lambs died for our sins. 
The heart of the work of Christ is this, and it is never less than this, that He bore our sins in His body. That He died in our place, and that He took the punishment we deserve. The core problem at the center of the universe, the root of it all, is that God created man good. He gave man all of creation to rule over as his representative, and man sinned. And because of sin, everything went wrong. And in order to solve the problems of this world, sin itself has to be dealt with. Our problem is primarily moral. We are sinners who have offended an infinitely holy God, and God's justice rightly hangs over the human race. And the only way we can be restored is if someone deals with that sin. Without that, there's no eternal life, no restoration of paradise, no liberation, no overthrow of tyranny, nothing. The heart of our problem is moral and internal. It is not cultural and external. And so Peter starts here. Why did Christ suffer? For our sins. But he expands on this. The righteous for the unrighteous. We call this the great exchange. That Christ who knew no sin, who was wholly innocent, was exchanged for those who were completely guilty. And that he willingly took upon himself the sins of his people. Think about it like this. He who was perfectly holy, who always did, said, and thought only holy things, was exchanged for filthy rebels who only thought and did evil and sinful things. The righteous for the unrighteous. And again, this points back to that Old Testament sacrificial system. Israel was instructed that when they were to bring a bull or a goat or a lamb to be sacrificed, they couldn't pick the one that was weak. They couldn't pick the one with a broken leg. They couldn't pick the one with a flaw or a defect. He had to be a perfect lamb. You had to give God your best. And in this way, the sacrifices of the Old Testament point forward to Christ. He was a sacrifice without flaw or defect, without any sin. For if Christ had sinned, He could not be exchanged for sinners. He would have His own debt to pay. Isaiah 3, or 53 is a perfect passage here to help us understand this. We read this, Surely, speaking of the, the servant of the Lord, the Messiah who was to come, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, it's a fancy word for sin, the sin of us all. Christ suffered. He suffered for sin. And so Christ suffered, Peter says, in the flesh, and he was made alive in the spirit. We need to be careful here. Peter is not saying that this reference to the Spirit is, is that Jesus only spiritually rose again from the dead. 
Rather, flesh here refers to Christ dying to the systems of this sinful world, world, and that he was resurrected with a new body by the Spirit. The Spirit is now how Christ lives as a regenerated and glorified God-man. So last week we spoke about suffering for the good. And here Christ is that chief example. He suffered as the good and for the good of those he loved. And thus he succeeded. The impact is found in this phrase in verse 18. That he might bring us to God. Why did Christ suffer for sins? That you might be forgiven and you might be restored unto God. Forgiveness of sins is at the heart of Christ's work, but that's not all of it. Peter now lists victory over evil spirits in verses 19 through the first half of 20. We are going to be here now for several weeks in 1 Peter um, dealing with passages that are going to sound weird to us. They're going to be complicated. And um, that as I was working my way throughout the book, I was like, come on, another one? But here we are, verses 19 through 20. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared. So this verse here elicits a lot of different responses from a lot of different uh, sects of Christianity and different commentators. Basically revolving around this question, who are these spirits in prison that Jesus, as the resurrected Lord, went to in which he proclaimed something to these some spirits in prison? There are three basic camps. There probably are more, but there, there are three basic answers to who are these spirits in prison. All right. The first is that they are a reference to people who were killed by the flood or before the flood. So in this camp, people argue that Christ went after his death. These people were kept there in prison. And then Christ went and he would proclaim the gospel to these individuals so that they would have a chance uh, to repent and believe after death. Now there are several very, very big problems with this view. The first is you would have to rewrite other passages of Scripture to make it work. So it's probably not true. We are told several times that you, once you are dead, that's it. You don't get another chance to repent. Hebrews 9.27 says this, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. After you die, you will be judged. You don't get to sit in prison and wait for Jesus to show up. Jesus says pretty much the same thing in his parable about the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, verse 26. There is no second chance once you die. You have to repent and believe before you die. If your interpretation of a difficult passage means you have to rewrite other passages, you probably should just pick a different interpretation. To make things even worse, the word spirits used here are almost exclusively used, that word, spirit, is, spirits is almost exclusively used in the New Testament to refer to angelic beings, not humans. So it's probably not option one. Second, some view the spirits here as faithful Old Testament saints who are awaiting the coming of Christ. That they were there beforehand and they were looking forward to the coming of Christ. And then Christ, after uh, he died, would go to them and say, hey, it finally happened, that thing you were waiting for. So these people aren't repenting, but they're waiting to see the proclaimed victory 
of Christ. The problem with this is the same as the first one. Spirits almost exclusively means angelic beings in the New Testament. So I'm not very convinced by this one. That leads us to the third option. Whenever a pastor says there are three options, the third option is the one he's probably favoring. All right? The third option. These spirits in prison are fallen angels, likely from around the time of Noah, that were judged and imprisoned by God as a part of his judgment at the flood. And thus, Christ, as he overcame sin and death, he went to preach and proclaim to those spirits kept in prison. Now be careful here. This does not mean that Jesus is giving them a chance to repent. The idea of proclamation here, the word used there, is more along the lines of that Jesus went there to say, I won. It's over. You lost. Game, set, match. So that these rebellious spirits that were judged by God, were kept there, and now Jesus came and said, the battle is now officially over. Like, you have no chance. There's other references to stuff like this with Jesus um, winning and dealing with Satan and Satan being kicked out of heaven. He knows his time is short. He knows he's lost. The declaration has been made. I think this best fits the context used here. And it helps us to understand that second thing that the work or the suffering of Christ does. The cross and the empty tomb are symbols of the triumph of Christ, of his victory. And that victory is inherent to the gospel message. A part of what we do when we go um, preach the gospel, part of what we do when Jesus said in the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me, therefore go and preach this message to everyone, is you're preaching that Christ has won. That he is the creator Lord, he is the Lord who reigns over everything, and he's the Lord who's going to come back. And that for a time, he's allowing a chance for you to repent. But the declaration has been made. Christ has won. He has overcome our death. This victory is inherently tied to that Christ died for our sins. If he didn't die for your sins, there would be no victory. We read in Colossians that he disarmed the rulers and authorities by what? By nailing our sins to his cross. The two come together. But if you don't have the dying for sins, you don't get the victory. What's the heart of the matter? It's the dying for the sins. The work of Christ accomplishes those two things. And Peter gives us another thing it accomplishes. It accomplishes escape from judgment. Look at verses 20 through 21. Another difficult passage. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Peter here is zooming in on the story of Noah. God has judged the world, and he judged the world using water. He judged the world through a flood. He covered the whole earth in water to wipe out the wickedness of man. God was, in essence, hitting the reset button. So we're going to start over, and we're going to start over with this family. And he saved, through the water, by an ark, only eight people. Water throughout the Bible generally symbolizes one of three things. Life is the first thing it symbolizes. Water brings life. We have the water of life. Christ is the fountain, the spring of the water of life. Second, 
Water often symbolizes purification. It is used to clean and to make things clean. Or third, and this is very common, water is used as a symbol of God's judgment. Think about the flood. Think about the Nile waters turning red, turning into blood. Think about the parting of the Red Sea and how God brought that down upon the Egyptians. Water often pictures God's wrath and judgment upon the sins of humanity. And of course, life, purification, and judgment in water all overlap quite a bit. When God judges the world through the flood, he also purifies the world and he also offers a new life to the world. The three come together. And just as God saved Noah and his family from judgment through the water, we are told that this corresponds with baptism. Now notice it says corresponds. It does not say it's the exact same thing. There's some likeness here. There's some unlikeness as well. But the obvious quick response here is what does he mean by baptism now saves you? Note what he actually says. He does not say that the rite of baptism saves you. That the rite of baptism brings forgiveness of sins. What did he just say at the beginning of this passage? Christ died for your sins. What actually brings forgiveness of your sins? Christ's death, not the element of water. In fact, he goes out of his way to say that the water itself does not save you. He says, not as a removal of dirt from the body. So he says, just as you would have dirty hands and you would go rinse them with water and that water would remove the dirt, baptism does not save you like that as removing the sin from your body. That is not how it works. It does not wash you clean. So what does this mean? He explains. How does it save you? As an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Most plainly, Baptism is an act of faith. It's an appeal to God. It is how you and I cry out to God and say, Save me! When we baptize people, we're we're Baptists here, right? We're making a declaration of our faith. We are saying, God, save me! And He does. This is the God-prescribed way to cry out for salvation. It is an appeal to God. And through that, God saves us. Not by the washing of water, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of the dead. And so baptism does not save you in a mechanical way, but it is God's prescribed and commanded way to come to Him. So God says, hey, you need to repent and believe. How do I repent and believe? How do I come to God? Through baptism. He says, this is the way I want you to come to me. Come to me through baptism, the first act of repentance and faith. Without this appeal, it is hard to say you are following Christ. For he has said, if you follow me, get baptized. Baptism doesn't save you, but the act of humble repentance and faith in Jesus Christ does. And so we see these two elements in our baptism, judgment and resurrection. Every time we do a baptism here, I say this, you go, you take the person, they go below the water, and we say you are dead to your sins in Christ. You are going into the tomb with him. God's judgment is covering you like the waters covered the earth. And then you come back out, and I say you are now alive in Christ. you got judgment, resurrection, judgment, resurrection. 
in every baptism we do. Just as Christ came out of the grave and is risen to new life, our baptism symbolizes that we too will come out of the grave in Christ to new life. Baptism doesn't save us as an act, but it is an appeal to God and to Christ's work that acts as an act of faith. Thus, Christ's work delivers us from judgment of God due for our sin. Baptism reenacts this reality that Christ has given us in a way of escape from judgment just as the ark was a way of escape. Christ's work also, finally, brings new authority. Look at verse 22. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Peter turns our attention now to the ascension of Christ. Peter was there when Jesus went up to the right hand of the Father. And he says, this Jesus, he has angels and authorities and powers now subjected to him. There's a lot going on in this verse, but we would be wise to pay attention to it. Christ as the risen Lord is granted a new position of authority. You may be like, wait a second, Levi. (laughs) See some of your faces. Hasn't Christ always been over everything? He has. He's the eternal Son. In In His divine nature, He is eternally fully God, and everything was made by Him, everything is made for Him, and He holds all things together. So what is this idea of Him now having things subjected to them? Weren't they subjected to Him beforehand? Yes, they were. So what are we talking about here? All of this is to say that Jesus' work as he comes changes everything about this universe. That as the eternal God, he always ruled everything, but now as the God-man, he now also rules over everything as the Messiah, as the second Adam, as now not just the creator of all things, but the redeemer of all things. Peter here alludes back to two Old Testament passages. First, he points to Psalm 110, a prophecy about the Davidic son, the Messiah, who was to come. We read this, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. At the ascension, Christ went to the right hand of his father and he sat down at the right hand of his fathers waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. This is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. Christ went to the right hand of the Father, and now he waits for that time when the Father says, Go. The time has come. Peter also points back to Psalm 8. This is a reference to the role of mankind. Christ functions as the head of a new human race. He's the second Adam. And we read this in Psalm 8. You have given him, that is man, dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet. Christ as the second man, the second Adam, is now ruling over everything as man was supposed to do. As the first Adam was supposed to do, but failed. In this way, Christ now has, or the eternal Son, has a new role. That all things are being subjected to him as the second Adam. As the risen Lord. This is picked up in Hebrews chapter 2. Paul, or sorry, Some people don't think Paul wrote it. The author of Hebrews quoted 
Psalm 8 at length. And then he says this, Now in putting everything in subjection to Him, that's Christ, He left nothing outside His control. I want you to hear that. He subjected everything to Christ. Nothing's outside of His control. And then he says this, At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. And this is where we see it. There is nothing outside of Christ's rule and control right now. Right now, everything is subjected to Him, but there's also a sense in which not everything is subjected to Him yet. We do not yet see everything subjected to His rule and reign. And so we are reminded that there's more to come. We are reminded that we do not see everything as it will be. And so Christ says to Peter in the 500 at his ascension, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. All of it, it's all his. But guess what? There's work to do, so go. Go preach it. That's the job of the church. We do not yet see the fullness of it. We do not yet see all of his enemies subjected to his rule. But we will. That's the promise. We will see it. Theologians call this the already not yet tension in the Bible. Christ goes to the imprisoned spirits and he says, hey, guess what? I won. You lost. Game over. There's nothing you can do to stop it. Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. But it's still being worked out. It's still advancing. This tension is at the heart of so many, so many of our theological disagreements right now in the church. There's a faction, especially among my Baptist brethren, there's a lot of us, who like to say things like, uh, Christ is King of kings and he's Lord of lords and he has all authority. But then when we get to certain areas of life, we say, no, 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 not here. He doesn't, he doesn't have authority here. They functionally deny that authority. It's only a theoretical authority. For them, it's only a not yet. Well, yeah, one day he'll have authority, but he doesn't have it yet. It's, a, it's, it's, it's not yet. But that undermines everything the Bible says. It's already and not yet. We can go too far and say, Jesus is ruling as best as he will ever. Well, no. There's an already and a not yet. All things right now are subjected to his feet. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. He created and sustains all things. All things exist for him and by him and to him. He is the ruler right now of the kings on the earth. Revelation 1.4 And so Christ has authority over everything right now. He really does. And there are implications for that right now. But we should not kid ourselves in saying that the kingdom is fully here, for it is not. That is still to come. And so Christ's work brings us this new era of authority. The risen Son of God rules and reigns over everything, and the nations are being made a footstool for His feet. His kingdom has conquered and His kingdom is conquering and His kingdom will conquer. The church is charged with proclaiming that message just as Christ did to the imprisoned spirits. This is an objective and present fact. Jesus Christ rules over everything in heaven and on earth at the right hand of the Father. And all of this is true because of His death and His resurrection. Listen to Colossians 1, 19-20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth 
are in heaven. How does he do this? Making peace by the blood of his cross. Making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus Christ reconciles all things to himself in heaven and on earth by his cross. By the blood that he spilled for our sins. What's the burning heart of the gospel? Christ died for sins. Is it only for personal sins that Christ died? No. Without that, there's nothing. But at the center, that changes everything. Therefore, we are to go forward in confidence. This is the power of Christ's cross. It is redeeming and remaking the entire universe because all of the universes is Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you this morning that you have spoken to us in your word. That in it we can see the suffering of Christ and in that suffering we have hope. That by the blood of his cross, he is making peace with all things. Bringing everything in subjection to his rule. Lord, we ask that you would hasten that day. Bring it quickly. But until that day, grant us the strength to walk by grace through faith. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.